Hello, everybody, and welcome to the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. I'm Frank Washcook, and I have a terrific co-host with me from the PR Week team. And that's PR Week senior reporter Jess Ruderman. Jess, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Happy to be here. First time co-hosting. And we have a terrific guest for you this week, and that's none other than Jeff Curtis. And he is the Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs and Chief Communications Officer at Horizon Therapeutics. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Frank and Jess. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you on. And you know what? We had a conversation a couple of months ago. And, you know, one thing that really stuck with me from the conversation we were talking about is that you you basically built out Horizon's team, their comms team, from from basically just you, right? And what did you focus on first? What were the top priorities? And I think a lot of people would love to know how you did it. Well, I, I think we were in interesting place when I first joined. As you mentioned, I joined as an N of one. There was no communications uh, function. There was no corporate affairs function. We had a few disparate people on the patient advocacy and government affairs side, but not, not a large team. And when I joined, it was very easy to see that a lot of the internal culture didn't match the external message. So we really weren't talking about who we were as Horizon. A lot of the messaging was focused on investors, analysts, earnings, which a lot of companies do when they're in a, in a growth trajectory. And the immediate focus was determining how we start to bring that, what's happening internally and what we see internally from a cultural standpoint and bring that external. And I think a key part of that and just getting to the team build just real quickly, first hire out of the gate was someone who had no pharmaceutical experience, no biotech experience, was an executive producer for Oprah Winfrey for 12 years. And she even asked me when she joined, she said, why, why did you hire me? And I said, you know how to tell stories. We need yeah. storytellers here in order to change this entire dynamic, which at the, at the time was very static and very investor focused into a more human and approachable company. It's interesting because, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work for our 25th anniversary issue right now, um, which will hit your, your virtual newsstand soon. Shameless plug. But, um, you know, one thing about it is that in terms of the skill set that people are looking for, the, the storytelling chops uh, are have been there for 25 years, are there now, and will probably be there 25 years in the future, whether you're using AI to supplement it or not, or whatever, you know, platform you're doing it on. I mean, it's really irreplaceable. And I could see how that was of huge value to you. Well, and also it was just, it was, a, that was a value, but also just the, the different mindset coming in, the diverse mindset coming in, not having any yeah. industry experience. And I think a lot of times, even on the corporate and agency side, we automatically skew toward, let's get somebody with insert sector here experience in order mm -hmm. to do this. And instead we'd actually, I took the approach and then subsequently my as the team was growing, we took the similar approach to how do we diversify just the mindset of the team overall and bring in different, different industry learnings in order to help us tell our story, in order to help us build in a way that was different from other companies we were seeing out there. 
Yeah. And I that really flies in the face of the, the stereotype out there that all healthcare organizations are really just hiring healthcare specialists in comms. And, and I think that is a totally different experience. Yeah. I, and the thing is, I think we, again, we can continue that with consistency. I think there are, I would say probably at least 35 or 40% of the team now doesn't have any pharmaceutical biotech experience. We brought them in from different industries because of just the skill set that they had that was going to help us as we continue to grow. That's really interesting. What do you look for? Uh, me, hands down, strategy. Strategy and vision. I mean, I my mantra has always been, I can teach you about the medicines. I can teach you about the industry. What I can't teach you is strategy, vision, execution. And so I look strategy first, vision second. They're close cousins, I would say. Execution second. Yeah. I can teach everything else. So as long as they have the strategy, can see around the corners, can think from an enterprise mindset, and I underline that from the standpoint of collaboration, no silos. If you can think enterprise, you're good. I Again, I can teach you everything else that you need to know. Yeah. So sort of bridge the gap for us between then and now. I mean, what, what were the other priorities you had when you were building a team from scratch? What's your agency relationships like? Um, you know, how, how did you, because you have a team of dozens now, right? I mean, you know, how did you get there from, from one person in terms of prioritizing? Yeah. So this team right now is 25 on the communication side, 53 overall from a corporate affairs side. Mm -hmm. And as you previously mentioned, that was built over the last eight and a half years. Um, frankly, uh, <laughs> initially it was survival and this company is yeah. growing. What do we need to do from a communication standpoint? It was prioritization kind of on the fly. We didn't really have a lot of planning, particularly when there were only three of us or two of us in the beginning. And we really had to focus on, okay, how do we just kind of keep the lights on from a communication standpoint? How do we start to change the image of the company, the reputation of the company, really start with that more robust storytelling and then think about how we structure. So I would say about four years in, then we started to really think about the structure, how we needed to build up the product comms and advocacy side of the business to, su to support the commercial operation, how we then needed to start to build up the corporate side to support more exec viz, reputation management. We rebranded in 2019, so that was a big lift. And then kind of added in from an internal communication standpoint, that build. And so, it was by business need to begin with, survival first, business needs second, and then kind of the the wish list of things and internal comms was kind of that that last uh, linchpin, so to speak. And if I were to do it differently, I probably would have put more a little bit more emphasis earlier on on the internal comms piece of it. We were kind of a lot of us were doing double duty, but we didn't really have any specialists. Now we have a, a team. Uh, with more internal comms specialists, I probably would have started that piece of the build a little bit sooner. Um, but don't re don't regret it. Just looking back now, retrospectively, it, it has become such a big need. And I think that's probably one of the biggest shifts um, from a communications standpoint overall in uh, for corporate is internal comms over the last couple of years. I couldn't agree more because that's what we hear from from peers of yours, you know, across the board, whether it's it's healthcare, pharma, whatever the industry is. You know, we've heard top communications executives at one point in 2021 or 2022 saying, I spend two thirds of my time on internal comms. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and by the way, it's not like the rest of your jobs just kind of went away during that time. It was it was on top of what you were doing. So uh, that sort of leads into my next question. I mean, how much time are you spending on internal comms nowadays? I mean, is it really still at the the top of what you're you're focusing on every day? Well, interesting 
we're in an interesting time right now. We're in the process of being acquired, yeah. um, and uh, we'll close uh, the acquisition um, within the the quarter or the fourth quarter. So coming soon. And so I would say 95% of my time is focused on internal communications now. And I'm not trying to be flip about it, but we announced that we were being acquired last December. Uh, there have been some delays from an FTC standpoint along the way that we've had to weather. And so it, the the uncertainty piece of it and the internal yeah. focus has really extended over time and, and really required a, a significant amount of attention. And so it's been really a new muscle for a lot of us to stretch. So a lot of strain has been on the internal comms experts who we do have on the team, but also we've kind of had to close the ranks a little bit more on even people who aren't specifically focused on internal comms to focus on internal comms, particularly as it relates to the teams on exactly where we're going and what we're doing, more transparency, more uh, frequency from an update standpoint. So it's it, it's really been an interesting task, but a, but a good learning at the same time. Yeah. And it's, we're in an interesting space too, in that I, at least here in New York, we hear about it all the time. And I think we, we hear about it from, you know, whether it's friends or, or whoever that might work in, you know, financial services or other industries, we're kind of in this like return of the office 2.0 period happening now where, where CEOs are very eager to get people back into the office. What's your take on that? And, and, you know, what's your take on, um, you know, executives mandating this and really, really, you know, directly mandating it? Do you think it works? Or do you think that, um, encouraging people to get into the office and collaborate more often is the better approach because there's various opinions out there about it. Yeah. I don't know that mandates work and I'll just tell you what we did at horizon and it's the nuances in the messaging. So we specifically said that we would like the office to be your primary place of work and whatever that meant to each individual and each individual team, they could decide and pre-COVID, we had a significant amount of flexibility. And using my corporate affairs team, communications team as an example, I have a lot of, we're in the, we're in the suburbs of Chicago. I have a lot of people who mm. live in the city on my team. They were, they were already splitting time between the city and the office pre-COVID. And so when we said we would like the office to be your primary place of work, that is really kind of how it, it had always been. We always had a lot of that flexibility. So the the onus was put on the managers and the team specifically to decide exactly what that may look like and what if people were still produ- productive at home two days a week and in the office three days a week, great. So that worked for us. But And, and I, I don't know that if it would have mandated, it would have landed as well as this message did. And I do think that just encouraging people to come and see what it's like since you haven't been in for two years or we've been remote for two years, just come in and see what it's like. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of people even on my team raged a little bit when we made that announcement. And then a couple months later, they started to realize what the collaboration, the camaraderie, the sitting in the same um, cube circle as people are near offices, what that actually looked and felt like and what that collaboration felt like. The the raging kind of went away. And and I, I kind of knew that that was going to happen, but it was just very nice to see happening real time. Yeah. Yeah. Let me kick this over to Jess for a second too, because Jess, isn't this is your first job in an office environment, right? 
Yeah. So I graduated in 2020, which was, you know, middle fun of the pandemic. So my first job was completely remote. They were never going to require us to come into office. Um, and yeah, this job, we're two days a week now. Um, we're Tuesday, Wednesday. And it's weird because I struggled at my last job that when they were off opening the office for people to come back, I, as a recent graduate, wanted to make connections, wanted to come into the office. But a lot of the older staff who had children at home or lived out of the city did not want to do that. So I think it is a little up in the air from people that I've spoken to my age that either just really like working remote and don't want to go in the office at all, or people that work in an industry where you want to be networking and meeting people and trying to make that push to have the availability to go in office where other people will be in office too. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too, it's the transparency and just getting to the point in what you want people to do or what you would like people to do, but also meeting them halfway where they're comfortable. I think a lot of companies, it was either mandate or no mandate. It was fully remote or mandate back in the office. And I do think that there is a, is a middle ground. And I think we found the middle ground. It's just that we had always, again, had a lot of flexibility even leading up to it. So it wasn't really a such a dramatic shift for people. It was a shock to the system initially, but it wasn't a dramatic shift once people started getting into it because they realized that the, the productivity was still there and you could have the, kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. No, it's going to be really interesting for the next few months to see how this works up and just how much you, you called it raging, just just how much raging there is going on out there. Because, um, you know, it, it's a different world than the great resignation period. You know, there aren't just just so many jobs out there for people to go to and it's a different environment. So we'll we'll keep a close eye on this. Jeff, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you're in a very specific area of communications and pharma. Um, you know, you know, do you often feel constrained by, by how you can market the company, how you can talk about the company in terms of what you can say and what you can't say, you know, whether that's on social media or, or in other environments, because the reputation at least is that, um, you know, in this industry, people just don't have, you know, kind of the flexibility to do what, what broad based consumer brands would do. Yeah. I mean, there are always going to be restrictions. Frank, and I, mean, I think that's just inherent within the industry. Now, what you choose to do with that and what you choose to do with how much risk you want to take is a big piece of it. And we've always been a company that is willing to take appropriate risk if it means that we're going to do something potentially differently that may either attract more patients, attract more employees, whatever it may be. And I, 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 so to the point, I always encourage my team and I think everyone here encourages their teams fast failure and it's okay to fail. Let's try it because the, the failure leads to opportunity and opportunity obviously is always going to be there in, in reaching a new patient in, in, in marketing a medicine. I, I think we think of ourselves, at least from a communication standpoint, and you asked about marketing the company. We're, we're a company that is deeper than just the medicines we produce or the pipeline that we have. And I, and I don't know that other companies see that within themselves and are willing to talk about that and take that risk. We have pay equity at our company. We talk a lot about pay equity. We have big DE&I initiatives that are well woven in through the brand. We talk about those a lot. So we talk about a lot of societal things, cultural things, community things that make us who we are outside of the medicine. So that's the table stakes, the taking care of patients is the table stakes, but talking about different things that are, are meaningful to the industry, 
that's what we like to do. And, 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 and we've had a, a pretty big canvas to do some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Um, now, it's been a few years, but you're a veteran of the agency side of the business as well. And um, I wanted to get your take maybe for younger listeners, maybe the Gen Z audience that, that, that is listening. Who, what's your advice for, for people who see themselves transitioning from the agency side to the in-house side at some point in their career? First, know the business, whatever, whatever sector you're getting into. Um, as soon as you step foot into the company, know the business and, and see how those pieces work together, particularly in communications. I mean, we're, we're the connective tissue with the enterprise and within corporate affairs, I have government affairs, CSR, all internal and external comms and patient advocacy. And a lot of those, uh, those functions have tentacles across the entire enterprise and somebody coming into the corporate affairs function or a corporate affairs function, regardless of sector, you got to understand how those pieces connect together, how the business op- how the business works, and how what you're doing impacts the overall business and enterprise. I don't know that I have anything else other than that because that's immediately when people get in. That's the that's the first day, and that's part of back to what I said earlier. Yeah, I can I can teach you that type of stuff, but you have to have some sort of foundation and framework to want to learn that, or else you're going to be in for a, a little bit of a rough patch trying to, to get up to speed in learning what you need to know. So let me jump off that because the last time you and I talked, you mentioned you spend a lot of your time coaching up employees and really you know working to get the best out of your employees um, and, and your team, specifically the comms team. Tell me a little bit about how you do that because I, I, I think that's a really interesting thing for our, for our listeners just in, in how you make sure that you're getting the best out of all of your teams by working with them individually. We've been very deliberate at Horizon about development, personal development, career development. And I don't know that I've seen a focus like this in other places that I've been. And I'm passionate about it, and I'm passionate that the company is passionate about it. And so what I try to do, it's a topic of every monthly check-in I have with uh, my, my teams, every one-on-one, whatever it may be, intentional career mapping, What's keeping them? Um, what, what are the obstacles? What are the opportunities? What's working? What's not working? Those consistent conversations, Frank, are key in, in just getting people comfortable with bringing career discussions up or development discussions up. Early on, I was just very transparent about that I want to talk about this type of stuff with anybody who's willing to talk to me and encourage my direct reports to do that as well. Because I've always seen through the course of my career, that's the hardest discussion to have. The hardest discussion to have with your manager is telling your manager what you want to do. And I want to open that door to say, tell me what you want to do so that I can help, so that I can help you be more deliberate or intentional about your career path. Or you can tell me you're having an obstacle and I can point you in the direction of a coach who may be able to help you or I may be able to help you. So it's just, it becomes just a natural part of the discussion. There was one example that I'd like to share. One direct report of mine probably four years ago came to me and said, I want your job. And I said, awesome. Let's figure out how you do that. And I'm here to help you do that. And she had asked her coach if she should be that deliberate with me. And I I honestly felt proud that she was willing to take that step to tell me because I would have never known. And then post that, she became part of my succession plan. We worked in different ways for stretch assignments to help to teach her things that 
that she may not have been in, in, uh, as skilled in where I could help to get her more in line with just the role overall. So it's discussions like that that we encourage a lot of. And if they don't happen, then people are just, they stay afraid to have those conversations and they may just stay along the same path and not really challenge themselves and, and take risks. That's really good advice. That is really good advice. Jeff, thank you for that. And thank you for joining the podcast today. Before we wrap up, let me hand it off to Jess Ruderman, who's going to talk about the biggest marketing and communications news of the week. And if you, dear reader, did not see, we launched our latest Hall of Fame class this week. And it is like every single year, it has a number of, you know, top people, bold face names from the industry. And Jess, who jumped off the page at you this year? Yeah, so just for a little bit of background, the Hall of Fame was set up in 2013. So this is what we're in 2023. This would be 10 years of the Hall of Fame, which is really exciting. And it just recognizes individuals who have outstanding contributions to the communications industry, PR, etc. Um, so this year's class features, you know, some great people, as they always do. Um, for me this year, um, Walmart's corporate affairs EVP Dan Bartlett and Microsoft CCO Frank Shaw um, are members of this year's class. They were also members of our power list this year, which came out a few months ago. Um, also founder and chairman of Libby Taylor, Maureen Lippy is in this year's class. And we have our inaugural David Finn Award honoree that's come out this year. And that's IBM's SVP of Marketing and Communications and CCO, mouthful of a name, Jonathan Adeshek. Um, and the award is presented by PR Week and Ruder Finn. It's honoring individuals whose work are reflective of Ruder Finn's founder, David Finn. That's right. So all of those awardees, plus there's going to be more, are going to be celebrated on December 4th. And excited to go and celebrate with them, have a few drinks. And we hope to see all of you there. Like you said, it's in the 11th year now. We're going to have to uh, figuratively build a new wing to the to the Hall of Fame soon, uh, now in the 11th year. And I'd also like to shout out Hilary Rosen, by the way, as one of our uh, Hall of Fame honorees this year. And you will, I, I'm sure all of our listeners slash readers will see a lot of Hillary on TV throughout the political season in 2024 uh, because she's a in-demand commentator. Uh, that, that you often see on cable news. So uh, congrats to her. Congrats to the entire class uh, this year. Uh, so Jess, there is a new job for Brandy Barker, uh, a big tech sector communications name. She has a new role. Yep. So um, Brandy Barker is taking over as Global Comms VP for General Motors. Um, she previously served as Director of Global Communications and Public Policy at Facebook. Um, she's going to be reporting to SVP and Chief Communications Officer Lin Hao Wu, um, who joined the company last month from Google. So both are tech hires. They're supporting GM's goal to evolve into strictly an electric vehicle company. And they have plans to completely phase out gas and diesel vehicles by 2035. So joining the list of lots of people moves post-Labor Day. Really, really does heat up. Um, I was surprised Lin Wawu was a, you know, a surprise hire at GM because that's an industry in which you, you tend to see a lot of comms heads from from various automakers move around and she was coming over from the tech sector and now they're bringing over another really well-known person from the tech sector so it really speaks to to how much they're valuing the transition to an electric automaker uh it's a tough job telling that story and uh convincing everybody so uh good luck to them on that uh let's move on to icr jess and tell us about their latest acquisition that you wrote about earlier this week yeah, so ICR has acquired Concilium Strategic Communications, and this is really notable because it's their third acquisition for this year, um, and it's following the 
acquisition of consumer comm agency Bullfrog and Bound that happened in June and B2B tech firm Lumina Communications, which happened in May. And Concilium, Concilium, excuse me, is an international strategic healthcare comms and investor relations firm. They're based out of London. So this establishes ICR's first on the ground presence in Europe. And Concilium will retain the brand under ICM Concilium, and it's integrating into ICR's existing healthcare practice, which is um, ICR Westwick. And Westwick was acquired in 2019 by ICR. And not the only recent deal. We have two big acquisitions in the political world uh, over at Omnicom PR Group. So Jess, tell us a little bit about those two. Yeah. So Omnicom has acquired political consultancy FP1 Strategies and its sister public affairs firm Plus Communications. Um, FP1 launched Plus in 2019, and FP1 is focused on Republican candidates and campaigns. They've helped elect more than 30 U.S. senators since it was founded in 2011. And the agency is currently working with South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott's campaign for nomination in the 2024 presidential election. So FP1 joins OPRG's existing political shop, which includes Democratic agency GMMB. So now they're getting both sides of the political parties there. And FP1 and Plus will continue to operate under their current brands within Omnicom. Yeah, an interesting mix of firms for sure. And uh, there is a new role uh, for industry veteran and a, a big name at IPR, uh, Stacey Jones. Yeah, so Stacey Jones um, has been appointed Honeywell's communications chief. Um, she's going to be overseeing external comms, crisis and issues management and executive positioning for the brand. She most recently served as senior managing director and global head of corporate communications at consulting firm Accenture, and she spent 23 years there. And just on the agency side, Finn Partner has been Honeywell's US PR partner since 2021. And we communications handles their global comms for the company's aerospace business. Excellent. Thank you, Jess. And thanks for that roundup. Folks, before we let you go, we have uh, a few things to keep you up to date on. The PR Week Awards, they're open for entry. The standard deadline is September 29th, and it will be here before you know it. So uh, make sure to get those entries in. The awards ceremony will be March in New York City. And other things for your calendar, the Purpose Awards are October 11th in Chicago. We have a list of finalists on the website, as well as directions for how you can get tickets. Uh, That's a part of PR Decoded, which happens on October 11th and 12th in Chicago, got a great lineup of speakers and panelists for you. We hope you take a look and consider going. We also have the 40 Under 40 live event in New York City on October 26th. Again, details and tickets on the website as are tickets for the Hall of Fame event that we mentioned on December 4th. And we're hoping to see all of you at some of those. Folks, that's all we have time for on this week's edition of the PR Week. Thanks for listening. And we'll be with you again next week.